If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, I want to get a couple verses from there as I speak to you this morning about believer's baptism. And I consider this message along the line of our Fundamentals of the Faith series that I've preached off and on for the last year or so, focusing on the articles of faith that this church was founded upon that being from Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which established Bethlehem, and that's from 1847. And I specifically use that dated document just to show you at least how far back this goes on paper to 1847 when brothers and sisters in the Zion community established Zion Church, Zion Primitive Baptist Church, and then later in 1901 established Bethlehem. And so we we are at Article 7 of the Articles of Faith, which are just basic statements of belief. Now listen, if you hear these articles of faith read, as, and you can go back and listen to the previous six that we've done, and you think, I don't know what that means. Well, then you need to get, get to work and get busy because this is the milk of the Word. You don't take your most complex teachings and put them in your fundamental articles of faith. It's the basics. It's the simple doctrine. That's what this is. And we read Article 7 from the Fundamentals of the Faith, from the Articles of Faith of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, 1847. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ and true believers in Him are the only subjects Christ instituted these ordinances for and that baptism by immersion is the only proper mode. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot contained within that article of faith. But I want to focus this morning for the time we have on believers' baptism. And I could approach this from a historical standpoint and talk to you about the Dark Ages and how your ancestors in the church who were known then and called, not in a nice way, Anabaptists, they would not take the baptism of other groups like Catholics and Episcopalians. And I'm not calling those names to be ugly. I'm just telling you the history And they were greatly persecuted because they would not accept infant baptism. That's what those guys were doing. So so understand why this is written down in the 1800s. These these folks were not very far from the days whenever their ancestors were being persecuted for saying, we don't believe an infant can consent to baptism. I want you to understand just a little bit of historical significance of why they say true believers. Because a believer is a person that can verbalize their belief. They can say, I love the Lord. I want to be baptized. And one of the historical significance of that article of faith is the Anabaptists, your ancestors, the the primitive Baptists were greatly persecuted, sometimes to the detriment of their lives because they would not accept infant baptism. They were called Anabaptists because the enemies of the true church, of the Baptist church, would say, these guys won't accept our baptism. We don't like that. And they had the power of the government backing them, and they would use governmental authority to persecute those that would only baptize believers, okay? You're going to see from the Word of God, we're not going to stick with the historical significance of it, but I want you to understand why they put that in there, true believers. So from an academic standpoint, we could come from that angle in 1 Corinthians 11 
but we're going to come from a practical standpoint. I want you to see the practical view of what baptism means, of believer's baptism, that part of Article 7. In 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 1 and 2. He says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. And you notice that in the article of faith it says, We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle Paul goes on in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians and talks about the Lord's Supper. Now we're going to focus on baptism. He, he talks about baptism in the first part of 1 Corinthians. But understand the word ordinance is a Bible word. And the word ordinance just means a precept. And specifically it related to Jewish tradition. So the Apostle Paul says that we have delivered these ordinances to you. The Lord gave them to us and we delivered them to you. That means they have been transmitted to you as God's church, as God's people in the church. Two simple ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They didn't come from me. They didn't come from a denominational mindset or committee that got together and said, we like the way this sounds. Who in the world could have come up with this on this world? The Lord, it is otherworldly. The Lord came up with it. So understand that these are biblical terms that we are taught here. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are those ordinances that were transmitted by Jesus to the church. And they've been observed somewhere on this earth for the last almost 2,000 years. So don't take it lightly when you were baptized or you are baptized. Think about what you're doing. You're going back almost 2,000 years to a precept that was put in place many, many centuries ago. And when you take the Lord's Supper, the same thing. The Lord's Supper being what I call the perfection of the Passover feast. Because the Lord is our Passover, you see? So let's talk about the practical side of baptism. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke, the third chapter. Because I don't want it to be some kind of academic study about why we are baptized and why we continue to baptize. Or I, and I don't want it to be just a, a historical thing. Although both of those are very telling. From an academic standpoint, in the Word of God, you can see it's clear. And from a historical standpoint, that's where you come from, are those that would baptize believers. Okay, but let's go from a practical standpoint, and let's see where all of this comes together. Now, I want you to notice the, the differences between baptism and the Lord's Supper. I just want to point that out kind of as an overview and sort of an umbrella over this. You know, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ was a very public thing. But when he observed the ordinance and instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, it was very private, was it not? And it was only for those that had been baptized. He took his disciples into a very intimate circumstance in the upper room and instituted the Lord's Supper. But the baptism was not that way. And also notice this, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ signified the beginning of His public ministry. And the Lord's Supper, the second ordinance, pointed to the end of His natural ministry. Now I know there's a lot of spiritual things that went on and miraculous things that went on in Jesus' ministry, but He does it the night before He dies. So at the end of His natural ministry and something great is coming, he, he begins with his public ministry and he ends about three and a half years later at his, the end of his natural ministry. 
So the baptism was very public. Thousands of people witnessed the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to read with me in Luke, the third chapter, as we see where the Lord steps out onto the stage of the world. And notice how this sets up by the writer here in Luke, the third chapter. If you, if you read this and you, don't, you come away with some other conclusion that this was not some kind of major event, and that the writer wanted us to understand the context of history and what was going on and Jesus Christ stepping out on the stage of the world. Look at what it says in Luke 3 and 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, that covers all your political players. The, the actors on the stage of politics right there. Do y'all see that? Now it covers the actors on the stage of religion. Verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And I think it's worth pointing out right, now, right there that when he says in the wilderness, the literal translation of wilderness is waste. Isn't that amazing that out of the waste, the wasteland of this world, the Lord brings forth something that the world has never seen. And His Son steps onto the stage of the world, not as an actor, not as a pretender, not an actor or pretender in politics or an actor or pretender in religion, but as the one true and living God, He steps onto the stage of the world out of the wasteland of this world. And child of grace, I don't want you to miss this. When you come forward and maybe you have been baptized, maybe you need to be baptized. <laughs> but when you step forward, you're doing the same thing in a sense. You're stepping forward onto the stage of the world, out of the wasteland of this world, and making the profession, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to follow Him. In that sense, you are doing the same thing that Jesus did when He stepped out onto the stage of the world. Now obviously... What Jesus did carried a great different mission, if you will, than what you and I do. His mission was great. And so out of the wasteland of the world, out of the waste, out of the wilderness, comes this strange man. And if anybody ever asks you, why do you want to be called Baptist? Because of John the Baptist. The first baptizer was called John the Baptist. The name John was somewhat of a unique name. And it means Jehovah favored, favored of God. So the favorite of God who got his name from God, you remember the angel told Zacharias to name that boy John. Jehovah favored. So John has been in the wilderness since he is old enough to take care of himself, which probably consisted of 10 to 15 years. Probably when he was 14 or 15, the Lord sends him out into the wilderness to live. Out into the wasteland of the world. And he's a very unique individual. He's a very Elijah-like individual because of what he wears and how he presents himself. He's a country man. I mean, he is, he's actually beyond a country man out in the country. He lives out in the wilderness. And he has a strange diet. The diet that he has is locusts and wild honey. You want to know where you come from? You come from a strange man who was living out in the wilderness, the wastelands of the world, who had a very strange diet. And I'm not telling you that you need to change your diet and start eating locusts and wild honey. Now, honey's pretty good. I don't know about locusts, though. <laughs> Maybe chocolate dipped. I don't know. But <laughs> fried and chocolate dipped, I still would. Don't tell me that's what it is. Just tell me after I tried it. I'm not saying you got to eat locusts and wild honey only. 
as a diet, but I want you to know that as a child of grace who steps onto the stage of the world to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in believer's baptism, you have a different diet, you have a different food to eat of than the world does. You have what God provides for you. It tastes different. It should cause your constitution, your makeup, not just, I don't just mean your physical uh, constitution, but your spiritual well-being. It should be a different diet than what the world is feasting on. And that's what this man came from the wasteland. And he began to cry out, make straight the paths of our God. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Isaiah the 40th chapter. And when they came to him and they asked him, what are you doing? What's going on? Are you Elijah? Are you that prophet? Are you uh, the one? Are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. No, I'm not that prophet that Moses spoke of, uh, spoke of in the Old Testament. And no, I'm not Elijah, but I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he was crying out. And I want you to think about how this upset the apple cart of the day. Because here are these Pharisees living where they live and telling people, you know, you're all going to hell because you're not following Moses' law. If you don't do A, B, C, and D, then you're not going to make it to heaven. And doesn't that sound quite the same as what many in the religious world say today? If you don't follow the pattern, if you don't meet the condition, if you don't follow the formula, you're not going to make it. And into that scene, out of the wasteland, comes this wild man preaching and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from what you're doing. And the Pharisees, they're jealous and thinking, how's this guy getting into our territory? Who is he? Who trained him? Who, to who told him to say these things? And, he, and the people are flocking out to see him. Don't ask me how that, that went down and, and the amazing miraculous thing that he comes forth preaching out of the wilderness and one guy hears him and tells another guy and that guy tells another guy and ten others hear about it. And all of a sudden, he's got thousands out there. And guess what? They're not following what the Pharisees are teaching anymore and they're not down and depressed anymore because the Pharisees have been telling them they're going to burn in the lake of fire because they're not as good as the Pharisees. And here is John saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's drawing a crowd out in the wilderness. And into this stage of the world, you know, you've, got the, you've got the Tiberius Caesars, you've got the Pontius Pilots, the Herods, you've got these other guys, you've got the religious elite, the Annas and the Caiaphas, and here comes weird old John <laughs> preaching in the wilderness. And everybody starts going out to he hear him. Now, at this point, I want to swap over to John, the first chapter, the Gospel of John, the first chapter, and you put all these three or four gospel accounts together of John beginning his preaching. It, it makes for interest. It's all interesting reading, but it really makes for interesting reading. And so in John, the first chapter, as all of these, these groups are coming out there, just the ordinary common, ordinary people, the Pharisees are coming out there, but the Pharisees are coming for a different reason. They've got questions. And in John, the first chapter, in verse 19, notice it says, this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And they say, again, are you Elijah? Are you that prophet? Are you the Messiah? And John says, no, I'm not any of those. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And you go on down to verse 24. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. This is John 1 and 24. And they asked him and said to him, why baptizest thou if thou be not the Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? So you see what's going on? John is baptizing people. He's telling them, repent, turn. And they say, 
What do we do? And they say, if you believe you are a sinner and that you believe that a Messiah is coming to save you from your sins, then you need to get in this water and let me put you under the water. Now, we're all used to that kind of a scene. I mean, I wish we saw it more and I wish there were tens of thousands that were doing it more. But we're used to that because for the last almost 2,000 years, we've we read in history and we've seen in our own lives people being baptized, going under the water and coming up. But this was a brand new thing to them. They had no idea the significance of what John was doing. He's getting people wet and, and thousands are going down into the water and he's putting them under. And, and the name, you know, as I stand up and I say in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, I baptize you, my brother and my sister. You know, John the Baptist was saying, for the remission of sins, for your belief in the coming Messiah, I baptize you. So they were looking for some deliverance, you see, in their baptism confession. And the people were getting happy. They were getting happy. They were all the time sad with the Pharisees' message. Oh, I can't make it. I can't live up to it. Unless I'm a Pharisee, unless I'm in the religious elite, I can't make it. Unless I meet the condition, I can't make it. Now they're getting happy because John is saying, repent. And if you're a soldier, this is what you need to do. If you're a, a, pers a common person, a businessman, a woman, this is what you need to do. He was giving them what they needed to do and baptizing them. And so it raised such a stir that the Pharisees says, why are you baptizing? Why? What is the significance of this? It's a new thing. And look at what John says. He says, I baptize with water. This is verse 26. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He said, there's somebody moving among you that you don't even know. And he is the Messiah. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. Now I think that's significant right there because it's the picture of a servant bowing down to unloose the sandal of someone who's coming into a house. I think it's also significant that it's very possible that they may have taken their sandals off whenever they went into the water, the river, to be baptized. So John's image that he's given there is, I'm not even worthy to baptize this guy, and I am not worthy to even take his shoes off. These things were done in Bethabara, verse 28, beyond Jordan, where John was baptized. He's baptizing thousands of people every day. And the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now this is getting just a little bit ahead of the sequence because this is after John has baptized Jesus. And he says in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not. Now this doesn't mean that he didn't know Jesus was his cousin. You remember Jesus is a cousin to John the Baptist. But it means that he was not for sure who the Messiah was. And if you ever wondered about the purpose of baptism of John, here it is. He says, I knew him not, but that he should be manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. So the baptism of Jesus was to manifest who he was to the nation of Israel. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not until that point. John was not for sure who the Messiah was. He'd been told about Jesus and he knew about Jesus and there had been things said to him by his parents and by his mother about Jesus and by Jesus' mother about Jesus. But this was what God had told John. Look at, look at verse 33. 
And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, God in the wilderness said to John, I want you to start baptizing. And when, when my son is baptized, I will show you that he's my son. So you want to know why John started baptizing? He's looking for the Messiah. He's, he's putting people down in the water, baptizing them in the name of the remission of sins. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the son of God? And so when John baptized Jesus, he says, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. He says, this is the Son of God because he saw, he's the only one that when he baptized him, the heavens opened, uh, the Holy Spirit like a dove in visible form, which is very rare for the Holy Spirit to appear in visible form. The three-in-one God manifested himself there at Jesus' baptism. And this Holy Spirit like a dove came down and lit upon Jesus when he came up out of the water. And the Father from heaven spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And John said, there's one among you that you don't know but I am come baptizing so you can know who he is. So John's baptism of Jesus marked the public declaration of where Jesus stood, of who he was. It established a cornerstone for all those visibly to see this is something new. This is something great. This is something we've been anticipating as a nation. And yet he was completely rejected by his own nation. Christ stood among the common people. And let me just say a couple things about that. They didn't even know him. We know him today because he came out as the Son of God in his baptism and he died and was raised again from the grave. We know him today, but they didn't know him. It was quiet and it was something very unobserved as Jesus made his way among the people in those days. One of the commentators that I read said that much true worth lies hid in this world. In a day and time when followers on the internet you know, bloggers, Instagram followers, Twitter followers. I think about the millions that flock to the politics and to the religion and to the entertainment and to the sports. You say, well, I just can't be who I need to be without being known and having all those followers or whatever. Nothing could be further from the truth. If Jesus had been in this day and time coming into the environment that we live in today, you know how many followers he would have had to begin with? Zero. <laughs> And then he would have added 12 later, you see. So don't ever think that because I'm not that known and because I'm not among that elite that has all those followers that I'm a nobody. Don't ever think that way. You're a somebody because the Lord says you're a somebody. So live like a somebody. You've stepped onto the stage of the world as a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, you should do so. And you've declared to the world that I love the Lord. I believe He died for my sins and I want to follow Him. That's the same thing that Jesus did. He manifested Himself to the world as the Son of God. You see, saints are the, are the hidden ones in this world. I believe some of the greatest people that have ever lived on the planet, you've never read about them in a history book. They've just been ordinary, God-fearing people that follow the Lord. And you know, God Himself is often nearer to us than we are aware of. So as we look back to Luke, the third chapter, we see the impact that John the Baptist preaching has. The Pharisees came and he looks at them and he says, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The religious elite of the day came and he warned them. 
And then other people were there in Luke, the third chapter. It says, the people asked him, what shall we do then? When's the last time that you asked men of God, wise counselors? When's the last time that you said, what shall we do then? Lord, what would you have me to do? That's something that God expects us to do. And this wild and crazy looking man with wild hair, wild clothes, and a wild diet, they look at him and they say, what are we supposed to do? And he tells them what to do. The publicans came. The tax collector said, what are we supposed to do? And by the way, he didn't say give all the money back to the people. (laughs) He just said, don't take more than you're supposed to. And the soldier said, what do we do? And verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or no, John begins to talk to them about Jesus. And then if you turn back to Matthew, the third chapter, in that particular account of this, you find that out of the crowd steps the Son of God. Y'all got that picture? Here's the crowd of the Pharisees over here. John has just chastised them as vipers. The people are gathered here. The publicans are gathered here. The soldiers are gathered here. Just this great stage here that is presented. And John's preaching probably in the water. Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Turn from your wicked ways. Be baptized in the name of the remission of sins. And maybe a hush fell upon the crowd. And there's a shifting among the crowd. And out steps the glorious Son of God. And the first step of His public ministry Every step that he took was a step moving him towards your salvation. And he set himself apart from the crowd and walked down to the dirty water of Jordan River and stood there and said to John, baptize me. And of course, you know what John says in Matthew 3. I I have need to be baptized of thee. And look at what Jesus says in Matthew 3 and verse 15. Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, do you think for one minute that Jesus being baptized was Him becoming the Son of God? No way. He's been the Son of God for all of time and eternity. And child of grace, when you step out as a believer and are baptized, don't think for one second that you're becoming a son or a daughter of God. You're just doing the same, following the same example of Jesus. Jesus didn't become the son of God in baptism. He just demonstrated that he was. And when you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you are just demonstrating, I believe I am a child of God. You see? Now, it was very public When Jesus stepped down to the water's edge and He told John, suffer it to be so now. And all these thousands, from Pharisees to publicans to soldiers to just the common people, are standing and watching in awe. Thousands! As John takes the precious Savior in his hands and he lays back in his hands and he takes Him under the water. His baptism by immersion. Takes Him under the water. Symbolizing now, we know, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Son of God. The death on the cross as He was upright. The burial in the tomb as His body was laid to rest in the tomb. And the resurrection as He came out. It's all a symbol. The reason God didn't tell John to baptize people in the sense of put dirt over them, number one, they'd smother. You see that? You wouldn't put dirt over someone and pull them up out of the dirt. No, the watery grave is a symbol of the grave of Jesus Christ. He goes under and he or she comes out. And Jesus did the same thing. He's pointing to what He's going to do. He's going to hang on the cross. He's going to go into the grave. And He's going to come out. And when you do that, you're saying, I believe Jesus hung on the cross. I believe He went into the grave. And I believe He came out of the grave. So you see, this was a very public demonstration 
of what Jesus had come to do. Christ didn't become the Son by baptism. He declared who He was and what He was here for. And John said, I beheld the Spirit of God descending upon Him, and I heard the Son of God say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, baptism, which Jesus did Himself, marked the beginning of His public ministry. And child of God, when you are baptized, maybe you've already been baptized. Maybe you need to be baptized. It is a marking of your public ministry, of your public profession, that you're going to follow the Lord. That I believe He's my only hope of salvation. That I believe He has saved me from my sins. It is your public profession of that. It marks the beginning of your public stand. You step onto the stage of the world. If you're, when you're baptized, or maybe you want to go back and do this. I think about when I was baptized into the church. You know, think about who was the president. Think about who was the governor. Think about who was the mayor. Who was the county commissioner. And that's exactly how the Lord viewed the days of Jesus. You know, this person was the Caesar. This person was the governor. And in all of that pomp and circumstance of politics, and all of the pomp and circumstance of religion, the Lord had His eyes on the Jordan River where His Son was being baptized. And don't you forget this, child of God. You may think you're nothing and you don't have any followers. I don't check online who's following me. You know, I don't take a roll each Sunday. Well, who's here and who's not here? Because those things can get depressing. And you may feel insignificant and useless. Make no mistake. When you stepped out onto the public stage of this world and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, and you submitted to believer's baptism, the Lord looked down from heaven and said from the throne, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And if you do that today or in the days ahead, make no mistake that the Lord says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Now you have a different mission in life than Christ did. Your goal, your mission in life is just to demonstrate what God has done for you. The Lord Jesus Christ manifested himself as the son and he went and accomplished your salvation. And you're just saying, I believe that Christ has done that. Church, the article of faith says we believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ and true believers in Him are the only subjects Christ instituted these ordinances for and that baptism by immersion is the only proper mode. Church, do you believe this? Amen. Amen. I believe it too. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't preach it to you. It is the truth. It is the Word of God. May God be praised.